0: As you know, John the Baptist is a key figure in the Bible. He's mentioned in all four of the biographies of Jesus Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Even before that, that is, even before the New Testament, there are prophecies about John the Baptist in the Old Testament. You probably know that as well. In fact, the Old Testament ends, the very final prophecy in the Old Testament is of John the Baptist in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. However, I think it's probably Isaiah who, Isaiah's prophecy of John the Baptist that gives us probably the the clearest explanation of John's purpose, why he came. He writes, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make, Make straight his paths. John's purpose, John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, John's the Baptist's purpose was to announce the coming of the Lord, the coming of Jesus. As a prophet, he was Messiah's messenger, we might say. It's safe to say, then, that John was in God's use. The title of our message this morning, as you can see, is When You're in His Use or When You're in God's Use. It's my hope that we might learn something about being in God's use from a man who was in God's use. And so, with that, I invite you to stand, as we typically do here at Rosedale Bible Church, for the reading of God's Word. And I'll read our passage this morning, which is is John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. John 3, verses 22 through 36. After this... Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. In this passage and through the example of John this morning, we'll see very simply two lessons for those in God's use. Two lessons for those in God's use. In the previous section we previously studied where Jesus and Nicodemus meet, this was a month ago when we looked at those passages in John 3, Jesus had been in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Here in verses 22 through 36, he's in the Judean countryside. John tells us that Jesus was baptizing, but we understand he doesn't mean that Jesus actually did the baptizing, and so if you look at, just glance over at chapter 4, verse 2, we read this, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. I assume the reason Jesus didn't baptize was to hinder any elitism that might have been that might have come as a result. You could imagine people bragging about Jesus, baptizing them. I could imagine that for sure. The setting for this text is, as it says in verse 23, Anon near Salem. We don't know where this location is today, but apparently there was lots of water there. It's likely location was somewhere near the Jordan River. Typically, people think of it kind of north of Jerusalem, although we don't really know where this place was. They haven't identified it today. The verb form suggests that John spent a considerable amount of time there, however, so he spent a lot of time there baptizing his disciples. Verse 25, we discover a conflict. Conflict arises between John's disciples and a Jew. It's from this conflict that the lessons of the text will emerge. As to the nature of the conflict, we're not given a lot of details in the text. You might know something about purification rituals. You probably heard them if you studied your Bible or read your Bible a little bit. Uh, these were very important to the Jewish people. The, these rituals involved different kinds of washings. And there were some Jewish groups who bathed in cold water for purification. It's possible this debate relates to how Jesus might have understood this kind of cleansing versus the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus, kind of conflating the two and and trying to cause some kind of discord here about what the baptism of John and Jesus is as it relates to Jewish purification rites. Although this discussion uh, is probably some kind of trick, for John to tell us that he was a Jew suggests that he's an uh, an opponent of Jesus. Throughout this book, John typically identifies the opponents of Jesus as the Jews. We read that, we know that there, this is a person or people going against Jesus. This suggests that the man is probably not seeking truth, but he's seeking to cause discord. So, verse 26, uh, as verse 26 su- suggests, he did just that. And so we have this response in verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. And all are going to him. The tone from John's disciples suggests they're not impressed with the rising popularity of Jesus. They don't approve of this. Notice, first, they don't even name Jesus. They don't say his name. They simply say, he who was with you and to whom you bore witness. Second, there's an exaggeration here. All are going out to him. As I like to say, it's a crazy notion. Right? All are certainly not going out to him, but the exaggeration uh, suggests a kind of resentment on their part. Finally, the tone of their complaint suggests that it was John who was doing something for Jesus, that he had somehow promoted his ministry in a, in a, a, a self uh, aggrandizement kind of way, a, a, a self uh, what am I trying to say? Promoting himself. <laughs> That's what, they're, that's what the, they suggest. It's this man, the one you hyped. He's now baptizing and all are going to him. So the disciples are insinuating, what are you going to do about it? Well, in verses 27 through 30, we're given the answer. And I might say it's a beautiful one. We'll see from John's response, there's no conflict in his mind between his ministry and the ministry of Jesus. And so here we find the first lesson for those in God's use. And it's simply this. You're his humble servant. You're his humble servant. John begins in verse 27. He begins with a general truth. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This general truth is really, I might say, a grand truth kind of truth. It's a maxim that sees God behind all our movements, an aphorism that affirms God's sovereignty stands behind human all human assertion. No doubt, this applies to what is physical, but here John is speaking of his calling or his ministry. John took no pride in his ministry. He rightly understood from where he came. I assume he knew the events surrounding his birth, the angel's visit to his father, the miraculous conception of his mother. You remember she was barren. All gifts come from heaven, and John's call is no different. Therefore, for John to wish he might serve in a more prominent way would be an act of great pride. Furthermore, if he were to follow his disciples' complaint, their thinking— He would be envious of the Messiah himself, which would have annulled the very ministry that that he came to do. Don Carson suggests that deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things betrays not only unbelief and faithfulness, but is the worst form of the perennial human sin. The arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. You might say this in of pride. This quote and these words from John reveal to us how practical the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is. The study of God's sovereignty is for more than stimulation. To see God as the principal power in the sky is, I would argue, immensely Practical. Are you angry with your circumstances in life? Well, the sovereignty of God is the only answer. Understanding the sovereignty of God will help you learn to accept your difficulties because they are ordained by a loving God. Are you a controlling person? Well, understanding that God is in control of every situation will help you to give over the control of your life and others, well, to God. Because God is in control of all things. And like I said, God is a loving God. Are you fearful of the future? Well, God is in control of every circumstance. Are you suffering? I know this is hard, but verse 27, again, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. When we dig into the sovereignty of God, we unearth something profound. Our trials are given to us by a loving Father for our good. From salvation to suffering, God is our Savior and our support. He is the centerpiece from which all things emerge. To learn this lesson is the access point to the greatest service and worship of our God. This, I believe, is. John is teaching us. John moves from this maxim in verse 27 to its application in verse 28. You yourselves you yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ but I have been sent before him. John is not troubled by the news that Jesus is gaining popularity. John made it clear from the beginning. He was not the Christ. He was sent as a herald You remember this in chapter 1, verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. John was entirely content with his his role. He knew who he he was, why he was called, and he was content in that role. And so he explains that role, verse 29, he explains it in in a kind of parable, we might say. He says... The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Kind of parable, a picture. As the friend of the bridegroom, John depicts himself as as a kind of a best man at a wedding. As the best man at the wedding, John's task was to organize the details and to preside over the wedding. His greatest joy then is found in watching that ceremony proceed without a problem and to participate in the union of the bride and the groom. That's what he came for. Isaiah 62, verse 4 and 5 says this, "'You, Israel, shall no more be called forsaken.'" And your land shall no more be called desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. Listen to this. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I imagine John knew that the Old Testament depicts Israel as the bride of the Lord. John is trying to help his disciples see that Jesus is Israel's king and Messiah. He came to purchase his people, he came to marry his people. And as the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, excuse me, John can only rejoice greatly that Messiah has come for his bride, the remnant of Israel. For John to say that his joy is complete is to say that he finds the ultimate satisfaction in knowing that his God-given ministry has been successful. John can only rejoice that men might not run to Jesus. So finally, we have these familiar words in verse 30. John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's kind of a banner that hangs over John the Baptist's life. Like stars that dim as the sun begins to climb up over the horizon, John's ministry must fade away. He must grow, Christ, and I must become less, John is saying. John gives us the secret, I think here, of great humility Christianity doesn't have a corner on humility. It doesn't really. I mean, you've probably met lots of humble people that are not Christians in your life. There's lots of humility out there in the world. You might have a family member or a co-worker who you'd describe as humble. John teaches us, however, that humility is more than self-abasement. There's another component of it. True humility, great humility, has another component. He must grow. Christ must be everything. On one one level, humility is about a proper view of self. As John said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Yet on another level, humility is about a proper view of him. Humility means we tear at the roots of pride and self, but it also means we cultivate the worth and glory of Christ. These two have to both be active, for true humility to exist. Arthur Pink writes, the more I try to be humble, the less shall I attain unto humility. It's really a selfish proposition. We begin to just think about ourselves. But, he continues, if I am truly occupied with that one who, who was meek and lowly in part in heart, if I'm occupied with him, if I'm constantly beholding his glory in the mirror of God's word, then shall I be changed into the same image, that holy, that meek and lowly image. That's where true humility is found, beholding his glory, looking at him, making much of him. As William as William Carey, famous missionary lay dying, he turned to a friend and said, "When I am gone, don't talk about William Carey, talk about William Carey's savior." Kent Hughes tells the story of F.B. Meyer. I don't know if there's any relation. Meyer was a preacher in London at the same time as Charles Spurgeon. As a young man, though dynamic and gifted, Meyer would stand on the steps of his church Sunday after Sunday and watch the carriages flow by to Spurgeon's church. We can imagine. Although difficult, Meyer stayed faithful to his ministry and faithful to his God. Another story comes from the end of Meyer's life when he was preaching in Northfield at the invitation of D.L. Moody. G. Campbell Morgan was preaching there at the same time. Apparently this guy was just around really great preachers. <laughs> <laughs> I have a commentary by F.B. Meyer. He's a, he's a great commentator, and he's a, he's a faithful guy. So uh, it's fascinating. But he, the Lord had him next to some giants of the faith. Well, great crowds came to hear Morgan, but very small crowds came to hear Meyer. The latter was not in his prime, and Morgan was in the full bloom of his preaching power. Meyer came back to his cottage one day feeling very sad and began to pray. You can imagine he was very discouraged. God worked in his life, and later he he was heard telling people, Have you heard Campbell Morgan preach? Did you hear that message this morning? My God is upon that man. It's not just about a low view of self, but it's about a high view of him. John teaches us what it means to be a humble servant of Christ. He shows us that it should look what it should look like when we're in God's use. You and I are to have a proper view, but in, a proper view of self, but an equal and proper view of Christ. And we find an exposition of that in the verses that follow, verses 31 through the end of our section here, 36. It's there that we're going to see the second lesson. It's this. He 's the honored son. he's the honored son." two, two lessons here. You're in uh, you're his humble servant, and he's in or he's the honored son. Now there's some debate on these verses, whether they are the words of John the Baptist or uh, the words from John the Apostle, as if this is some kind of exposition from John the Apostle. You'll see that. There's a, the quotation ends in the ESV. If you're looking down at the ESV Bible, the quotation ends at 30, and, and you have a little footnote there. There's that little number 1 there. And then if you look at the bottom, it says, some interpreters hold that the quotation continues through verse 36. And so you know, did John the Baptist speak these words, or is John the Apostle writing these words as kind of a commentary? And so that's what commentators debate You might know this or not, but in the Greek language, there's no uh, quotation marks. And so it can be hard at times to determine where does a quotation start. It's usually easy to find out where it begins because it says, and he said, dot, dot, dot. Uh, But where it ends, sometimes we don't always know. Uh, However, as I read this, I I suppose with fear and trembling, I'm going to go against the ESV translators. Uh, because I just don't see any reason why we should stop. I think John is continuing to speak. That seems to make the most sense to me. And so I'm going to teach this as if John the Baptist is saying these words. In fact, I was listening to my audio Bible, and I was trying to pick up if there's any kind of translation just from hearing it. And even as you hear it read, it just seems like John is continuing to speak. And so that's, how, that's my, my view on this. So... John the Baptist says of the honored Son in verse 31 He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. These verses are somewhat abstract, I admit. Here, John continues to unpack the difference between Jesus and himself. I think that's what he's doing. But he does so by casting the the widest net possible. That is, John says that Jesus is not only above him, but above all. John the Baptist, John's disciples, you and I, we are of the earth. We belong to the earth. We speak in an earthly way. But the honored son, he comes from heaven and is not just above us, me and you, John's disciples, but he is above all. As it says, he is above all. And it's this one who is above all that bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. I can only imagine what Christ has seen. I spent some time just thinking about that. Wow. What has Christ seen and heard? Well, last week I actually read John 5, Verses 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does that the Son does likewise, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Maybe you remember in Luke chapter ten, Jesus sent those seventy-two disciples out. You remember when they returned? Jesus declared, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That would be amazing to see. In what we call the transfiguration, the disciples see Jesus in his glory. He's there kind of the veil is turned back, and he's seen in all his glory, and he's he's talking to Moses and Elijah. That would have been something to see. Yes, from our perspective, but you can imagine Jesus seeing all of that. It's fascinating. In Mark 13, the disciples ask Jesus about the future of Jerusalem and of the temple. Tell us about these things. What's going to happen, Jesus? In what's called the Olivet the discourse, uh, discourse there, Jesus unpacks and shows them all that will happen with Jerusalem. A future prophecy about the destruction of the temple. He's able to see all of that. As God's honored son, Jesus can see all these things. And on a more personal level, Jesus sees the hearts of men. He even sees into us, which we learned some weeks ago in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, you remember this, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This relationship involves not only sight, but also hearing. John the Baptist says Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Well, John 8, verse 28 so Jesus said to them, when you, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. The things that He heard from the Father. Chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. Similarly, it says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, this is Jesus, But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Of course, the focus there is on the things pertaining to salvation. The Father has told the Son all of the things, all the components, all the features, all the attributes of of the gospel and how we're saved he shared those with the son and the son is of course living them out you remember that, that wonderful passage in First Peter where it talks about the, prophes- the prophets in the early chapter 1 Peter 1 verses 10 and 12 there where the pro- Peter writes that the prophets when they wrote they were looking forward into the future and they longed to know how would all this happen how would it work out you know, Isaiah, you can imagine Isaiah writing of the suffering servant in, in chapters, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, longing to look. How, what does a suffering servant look like? How is this all going to happen? They long to see these things. He even goes as far as to say things into which angels long to look. Even in those heavenly places, the angels around God's throne long to see what we see, what we, the revelation that we have in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, I know it's crazy, but we have more than they had. They didn't know the full story. And we have his word. We have God's finished revelation. We look back at the cross and we're able to look back and see all the rich dynamics of the gospel. They were in the dark. The prophets and the angels. I put to imagine... In my mind, before the dawn of time, what Christ would have heard. What would he have heard the Father say to him? What things would the Father utter? I'm not suggesting that the Son learns anything. I'm not sure how this works out in the mind of God. However, he might have heard the Father speak these kind of things speaking to the son, you'll justify the ungodly through your death. Those who you die for will themselves die to sin's rule over their life. They were in a state of only able to sin and because of your death, my son, now they'll be able to not sin. Your death will forever free them from condemnation those who are yours or ours, will be given your mind, the mind of Christ. You'll be purchased, they'll be purchased, excuse me, with the price of your life and they'll belong to us. They'll be made righteous. We'll bless them with every spiritual blessing Even now, before the foundation of the world, they are chosen and holy and without blame. Before the words of creation were spoken from the word, from the logos, from Jesus, they were set aside. They were marked out. They were chosen to be holy and blameless before him. In God's perfect will and perfect design. They'll have direct access to us through the Spirit. They'll be able to access us with boldness, freedom, and confidence. You'll be in them. They'll be complete in you. They'll be raised to new life because of you. They'll have a new body, raised from the dead. They'll be given a spirit of power, love, and self-control. They'll be partakers of our divine nature. Wow. Wow. And finally, as if this list could even touch all the things that the Father might say to the Son. In my piddly little mind, they'll join us in heaven, and lift your name on high forever and ever. And the only death in in heaven, there's a death. The only death is that we say, "Worthy is the Lamb." who was slain. That's the only death. And it's there forever because it represents the purchase of God's people. And so we declare, worthy are you. And of course, I know I'm speaking kind of in a weird way, as if the Father is speaking to the Son, but all of this is ours through faith. And you think men would be climbing over themselves to get it. But they're not. Verse 32, again, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. All that Christ has seen and heard, all of which he has declared to men from the mind of God, man's creator, man willfully rejects. We saw that in chapter 1 verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. John the Baptist, however, this is the point of his argument to his disciples, he has received this testimony, which is relevant. He's trying to convince his disciples that Jesus is the honored son, and he is just a humble servant. Therefore, I think John is speaking here of himself in verses 33 and 34 when he says, whoever receives his testimony, that's John, the way I'm taking it, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent, that is John, utters the words of God. For he, that is God, gives the spirit without measure. Again, trying to convince his disciples He sets his seal. He he certifies or authenticates something is true. You probably know this practice of uh, the seal idea where you have a signet ring and this person presses the the signet ring into hot wax and they, they approve it, approve of it, whatever that item might be. Well, here John is using that expression to indicate that he accepts Christ's testimony. He seals what God is doing through Jesus. So if you're my disciple and I'm putting my seal on his words, what choice do you have? You're either not my disciple anymore, or you call me a liar. Go to him. I'm a herald. He's laboring to convince his disciples that Jesus is Messiah. John has set his seal of approval on it. And in order to establish even more weight to his argument, he explains in verse 34, that he was sent by God. And he speaks nothing less than the words of God. He's uttering God's words. And the spirit, of course, sees to it that John is properly equ- equipped. for he, as God, gives the spirit without me- measure. Therefore the disciples of John have every reason to believe and to obey John's words. John moves away from himself, finally in verse 35. He speaks about the relationship between the Father and the Son. Again, he's laboring to convince his disciples that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. All things. Gospel of John, we often read that Jesus was sent by the Father and that it was the Son who obeyed the Father. It's never the other way around. The Son is obeying the Father. Yet, here we're reminded that such a relationship is nevertheless one of love. It's a love relationship. The Father loves the Son. And this, of course, makes sense because, First John 4, 8, God is love. As a result of such love, the Father has given all things into Christ's hands. All things we say this all the time. What's all things? It's all things. I don't know what else to say. You don't like the language, English language or not. It's all things. He gives all things into Christ's hands. He has placed everything into his hands. Gospel of John alone, we discover that his disciples were given to him, his works, his message, his authority, his name, his glory. All of these things were given to him. You remember in 1811, the cup that he must drink was given. And finally, in 522, all judgment was given to Jesus. All judgment. You might remember that sweeping statement that Paul gives us in Ephesians 1.10 and verse 22, that in the fullness of time, the Father would, quote, unite all things in Christ Things in heaven and things on earth, and that He, that is the Father, put all things under Christ's feet. He gave Him as head over, again, all things to the church. I don't know how else to say that Christ is everything. You can't say it any stronger. And to say that these things, that is all things, are given into his hand is to say that he's the one that dispenses of all things. They're in his hands. As the honored son, all things in heaven and earth are his and his to dispense. Which means, most importantly, oh, most importantly, (laughs) for you and for me, It's Christ who holds the key to eternal life. I think the logic is simple. I don't know if I'm explaining it well. I pray that I am, but it's very simple logic. Look at verse 36, which is why he says this next. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him abides on him. It's like a hat that can't take off. It just sits on his head. It's insofar so far as he doesn't believe, it abides on him, God's wrath. But it is so long as he believes, it doesn't abide. And he has eternal life. Lensky reminds us, my favorite commentator, These are not abstract or theoretical propositions that the Father loves the Son and has given all things in his hands. They're not abstract. They apply most directly to these disciples, yes, and to us. Since all things are in Jesus' hands, life eternal is included. It is the highest gift dispensed by the Messiah. There's no higher gift that could be dispensed than eternal life. Therefore, everything depends on each man's personal relation to Jesus," end quote." This is the most important thing in all of life. There is nothing higher and nothing more important than what you think about Jesus. And so we have two great alternatives. It's like the track that we give out, two ways to live. He that believes in the Son and he who disobeys the Son. To disobey the Son, as John says, is to not believe the Son. Likewise, flip it, to believe the Son is to obey the Son. As the Father's honored Son, obedience is the only normal and right response to Him. If you have ears, hear. And our refusal to obey is the most harrowing challenge to His character. We might say the disobedience of unbelief is the crime of crimes. And as the words of this text, as the words of John the Baptist fall on the disciples' ears, as it, as it falls on them, all of their hostility towards Christ should cease. He should drop everything and be running to Jesus. Jesus. In a second, they should trust Christ with all their heart. In their current state, their current station, the wrath of God remains on them because, as far as we know, they haven't acknowledged him as the honored son. To not obey the son is to be in a state of infinite loss. I suspect you don't like the topic of God's wrath. (laughs) I don't, but we have the word here in verse 36, the wrath of God remains on him. Certain realities we tend to avoid, we sweep them under the rug, as it's said, and wrath is one of them. Now, if you picture God's wrath, or if your picture is is of a God who is angry at man, um, cruel, bloodthirsty, if that's the kind of the picture you have of God's wrath, and I don't think that's right. I think that's the wrong picture of God's wrath. Quite simply, God's wrath is, maybe my definition, the necessary reaction of his righteousness and holiness against all sin and guilt. The necessary reaction of his righteousness and holiness against all sin and guilt God's perfection demands that he cast away from him all sin and unbelief. God's excellence demands that he receive only that which is pure and obedient. It's rooted in his character. Thus, the Bible teaches us from Genesis to Revelation that the stain of sin prevents man from gaining access to his creator. Man is under a penalty We read of the penalty in Genesis 2, very chapters, verse 16 and 17, the very, very beginning of the Bible. We find, we discover this penalty, and it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That reveals a problem and a penalty if Adam were to eat. Well, we know command was broken, that they did eat. And so, because of that, sin entered the world. We're just rehearsing what we know, right? Sin entered the world, and the penalty was administered. And so Paul writes in chapter five, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, as a a penalty for that sin, death entered the world. So they would have never died, theoretically. They never sinned. But because of that sin, death enters. So Paul says in Romans 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So everyone that's born from that point carries that stain of sin. And because we carry that stain of sin, we're perishing. And we all know that, (laughs) We're getting older. Death is coming. And every moment, every day that time passes, it's a reminder of, that sin is here in the world. Because death is in the world. And so, because we all sin, because we have this stain of sin, in this sinful state, as Romans 3:23 says, all of us fall short of the glory of God. We cannot measure up. It's impossible. Of course, God has not let us, uh, he has not left us subject to that penalty. We see that right away in the book of Genesis because Adam and Eve are covered with animal skins and we have a clue right there. I mean, Adam should have died that very moment. Truthfully, the fact that he, he, he ate that fruit and took another breath is God's grace in his life. And so, God has not left us subject to a penalty. In the Old Testament, God made a way to come before him. We might say, God made a way to make up the glory. A way to be accepted by him. To somehow balance out or appease his wrath. And this, his people did, through sacrifice. Sacrifice was necessary because the penalty of sin was death. As the book of Hebrews said, we almost read this verse. Hebrews 9.22, For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is actually all what the book of Hebrews is really about. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. While these sacrifices were necessary and good, they were not able ultimately to cover the penalty. This is why animal sacrifice was practiced over and over year after year in Israel. For in the end, Hebrews 10.4, It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It's fair to say these these sacrifices demonstrate both the nature of the problem and, on the positive side, what might be required to fix the problem, which is what the author of Hebrews is driving at as he moves through that book. In talking about all these Old Testament sacrifices, he's showing you there's something better coming. If something was to be sacrificed in terms of fixing the problem, if something was to be sacrificed, maybe someone, with an indestructible life, with a perfect life, with a holy life, well then, God's wrath, and I love how the King James says it, might be assuaged. It's an old word, but I love that word. Assuaged, satisfied. His wrath might be appeased. It might fall away. It might be averted, however you want to understand it. It's gone because of the death of Jesus. And so Hebrews 9, verses 24 through 26, we'll read it next Sunday. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, and here's a beautiful, beautiful reality, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It was only Jesus, only Jesus, who could fully and finally put away sin. As God's honored son, he brought his indestructible life to this broken and sin-filled world. And although the world rejected him, the father didn't. The father didn't reject him. I don't know what that moment looked like, But I know what he probably said was, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so we declare with Paul, I am not ashamed, for I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced, I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And so I'll close. Jesus said, I love this, in in Matthew 11, verse 11, Jesus said of John the Baptist, Among those born of woman, there there arose no one greater than John the Baptist. Every time I read that, it's shocking. Really? The greatest man that ever lived was John the Baptist. So Jesus says, I don't know who's not born of a woman, but if I'm paying attention, <laughs> that's everybody. This world, we've created many ways to honor man. You probably know, you know, the NFL, we're talking about the NFL right now. It's playoffs and all this. You know, the NFL has its Walter Payton Man of the Year Award. Maybe you know about Time Magazine, their Person of the Year. It seems like I remember that when I was a kid, but... That's some, some way that we've honored men. Even further, 1949, actually, Winston Churchill was named man of the half century. Quite a man. 1989, Gorbachev was named man of the decade. Some of you remember that year. Maybe you're wondering about person of the century. Oh, well, they, ha- they have named that. Any guesses? Person of the century? Albert Einstein. Who thought theoretical physics would be important, you know? Apparently it is, because he's the man of the century, Albert Einstein. No doubt these people, Winston Churchill, Albert Einstein, they've made great contributions to this society, this, this world and to human flourishing, no doubt about that. Yet on the mouth of God, the person of what I'm calling the millennia, which is the plural form of millennium, so the person of the thousand years, Whatever time is, however you take that, is none other than John the Baptist, person of the millennia. Why? Well, I think because while in God's use, John kept the right perspective, he understood that he is just a humble servant, and God, the Son, is honored. These are the two lessons from this text. I don't think it can really be said any better than John 3.30. There's a banner that I want to fly over my life. It's this. He must increase, but I must decrease. One final thought. You may not feel, you may not feel that you're in God's use, but you are. We tend to think that being in his use means that we teach a Sunday school class or we lead a growth group, uh, or we're a a deacon or you know, we're a pastor and elder. These are the people that are in God's use. Certainly those people are in God's use. However, each and every one of us is in God's use. May not be showy, may not be out in front, but in each and may not be out in front. But in each and every conversation, we have the opportunity to listen and to love. And that's what it means to be in God's use. I know for me, just gathering is being in his use. Just coming on a Sunday and being together as the body of Christ. Means you're in his use. So each and every one of us is being used by God right now in this moment. Seeing your face, seeing my face, building each other up in that way, it's huge. There might, there might not be words for it, but it encourages us, it helps us. And so you're in God's use just that way, in just that way. I, I think you get my point. Two lessons are not just for prophets and pastors, they're for each and every one of us, no matter your state, no matter your station. And so let each of us then truly hear these wonderful words in 330. He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen.